Well, if you're at all unhappy with some of today's political leaders, just be glad that you didn't live in first century Jerusalem. Okay, let me introduce you to a few guys who were running things back then. Uh, First of all, at the macro level, the Roman Empire, the guy who was running things, the uh, emperor was a fellow named Tiberius. Now, as a young man, uh, Tiberius had been a great soldier, one of Rome's greatest generals, a military strategist, brilliant. Uh, his dad was Caesar Augustus, the emperor at the time. Uh, Tiberius was a likable guy. He married his high school sweetheart. They had a baby, another child on the way. When dad, stepdad actually, Caesar Augustus, asked Tiberius to divorce his wife, his true love, and marry somebody else for political purposes. So Tiberius did it, but it flipped a switch in his heart and mind, turned him bitter. He became morose, cruel, morally depraved. Tiberius started killing people for sport, sometimes entire families, routinely violated women, even wives of Roman senators, occasionally kidnapped children and abused them. He was not a very nice guy, but Tiberius, if you lived in first century Jerusalem, he was your emperor. Now your governor, your governor was a dude named Pontius Pilate, Pepe as his friends called him. I just made that up. (laughs) Pontius Pilate was a governor appointed by Tiberius to rule over a region known as Judea, whose capital city was Jerusalem. Uh, Judea was an upstart region, always uprisings, more uprisings in Judea than in any other part of the Roman Empire. So, So Pilate was chosen in part because he had a military career. And so it was hoped that he could restore law and order to the region. And one of the first things he did when he came to town, the capital city, Jerusalem, is he had the portrait of the emperor Tiberius splashed across banners all around town. You know, he figured this would point out who the real boss is. And it was also his way of sucking up to Tiberius. Unfortunately, this little act of homage backfired on Pilate. The people didn't take to it kindly. They complained to the emperor himself. They sent a letter saying, do you know what your governor has done? He's causing all sorts of trouble. And Tiberius was not happy with Pilate because, again, this was one region of his empire where he didn't need more trouble. And so he scolded Pilate, and now Pilate was grumpy with the tattletales who thinked on him. And so he started behaving cruelly to the local population. For example, one of the things he did, he built an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem, but he paid for it with money he took out of the temple treasury. And when protesters showed up at his palace in mass to complain, he had some of the soldiers disguise themselves as local peasants, infiltrate the crowd, stab anybody they could, killed a bunch of people. Another nice guy. That's your governor. Governor Pilate, your, your mayor, now he wasn't called mayor, but for all intent and purposes, he ran the city of Jerusalem. Your mayor would have been Caiaphas. Caiaphas was actually the Jewish high priest. He ruled the Sanhedrin, a religious council of 71 leaders, and the Sanhedrin ruled Jerusalem. But I don't want you to think of Caiaphas as a deeply spiritual man. He was first and foremost a politician. He was in cahoots with Governor Pilate. In fact, he was such a good politician that although the previous four high priests had all lasted one year apiece in office, Caiaphas had been holding down the job for 12 years and running. So he knew how to play political hardball. He also knew how to make money. 
His family owned vast amounts of land surrounding Jerusalem on which grazed sheep, which Caiaphas then sold to the temple as sacrificial lambs. He made enough money to build himself a lavish house in Upper Jerusalem. You think Chicago politicians are shady? Yeah. Meet your mayor, Caiaphas. Well, now that I've introduced you to the super-ego trio, the Emperor Tiberius, Governor Pilate, Mayor Caiaphas, you'll be able to understand why it was so unsettling for a young rabbi to arrive on the scene whom many were hailing as King Jesus. Excuse me, King? (laughs) Did somebody say King? Tiberius, Pilate, Caiaphas wanted to know. I mean, these bad boys were not about to give up their rule to some rival leader. And friends, that is, we're going to see today, that's the same issue that every one of us here has to deal with. Are we willing to concede the rule of our lives to King Jesus? Are you willing to concede the rule of your life to King Jesus? Now, you may not be in the habit of thinking of Jesus as king when you imagine Jesus. Uh, Maybe you imagine him as the baby in the manger Christmas time. Maybe you imagine him as the, uh, the peasant rabbi who travels around lecturing on love and other important topics. Uh, maybe you picture him as the worker of miracles or the martyr who hangs on a cross. But king? You don't usually think of him as king. But this is one of the most prominent roles that he is depicted as playing by his four biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They picture Jesus as king, as king, as king. For example, when he's born, there's a choir of angels that appear to a group of shepherds on a hillside outside the little village of Bethlehem, and they announce, a king has been born. Sometime after that, a group of magi, wise men from the east, arrive in Jerusalem and say they're looking for a king. They've seen his star in the sky. They've come to do honor, to worship him. Thirty years later, when Jesus launches his ministry, the very first words out of his mouth, first words, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. You know, intimating that he, the king, was now on the premises. In fact, this kingdom of God theme is so prevalent in Jesus' teaching, he mentions it over 80 times in the four Gospels. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, each time hinting, he's the king. In fact, on the last week of his life when he rides into Jerusalem, it's on the back of a young donkey which every observant Jew would have known was a fulfillment of the prophecy hundreds of years previously made by Zechariah, Zechariah 9 verse 9, who said that one day the Messiah king, the deliverer king, would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt. Jesus was making a statement, I'm that king. Later in the week, he stood on trial before Pilate, and Pilate asked him the question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus acknowledged that he was indeed a king, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He's a king. Pilate posted a notice over his head on the cross, Jesus' head on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. After he died, the third day he rose from the dead. Fifty days later, his followers were on the streets of Jerusalem saying, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. One of them, a guy named Peter, gets up and preaches a sermon. And the sermon is all about this resurrected Jesus now being exalted to the right hand of God where he reigns as king over all. 
See, everywhere you turn in Jesus' biographies, you encounter his kingship. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. His kingship can't be ignored. So we're going to take a closer look at it today. In fact, we're going to look at the sermon I just mentioned to you. Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. If you brought a Bible, would you find the book of Acts? It's right after the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. And I'm going to steal Peter's sermon, and I'm going to preach it today, okay? So Peter... Peter tells us three things about Jesus as king I want to pass on to you. And you've got an outline in your program. I would encourage you to follow it. It will help you listen intently. And as I said in my opening prayer, I believe God's brought you here because he wants to speak to you. And if you think that might be a possibility, I would encourage you to write down what you think God's saying. So three truths about Jesus as king. The first has to do with Jesus' qualifications, his qualifications to be king. The sermon opens in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. Let me read it to you. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This Jesus is spectacular. Peter begins with his qualifications to be king. Jesus' qualifications. Have you seen the new TV reality competition called King of the Nerds? Anybody see it? It's in its second season on TBS. Some of you are afraid to admit it. Yeah, you should be. What a dumb show. Okay. You know, I I haven't watched it myself, but I, I was curious because I couldn't imagine putting King right next to Nerds in a title for a show. So I went on Wikipedia to see, you know, what's happening. It's this competition, like all these reality competitions, starts with a large group of people at the beginning of the season, 11 nerds living in the same house called Nerdvana. I'm not making this up, okay? And they're working at eliminating each other until one nerd's left standing, he's now king of the nerds. And so the competitions include, well, nerdy stuff, okay? So they got to write their own fantasy myth, and then each of them act it out, or they got to choreograph a nerd dance, or each of them, uh, you know, puts together this giant Rubik Cube, you know, nerdy stuff. Or my favorite, they fly around a remote control helicopter while the other nerds are shooting Nerf weapons at it. And I'm thinking to myself, this fully confirms my feeling that king and nerds don't go together. Okay, kings, kings are supposed to be regal, right? Jesus proves that he's a worthy king, a righteous, compassionate, all-powerful king by the heroic actions described in the verse I just read to you, Acts 2, verse 22. Let me lump those actions into two categories. First, you got his miraculous deeds. Look again at verse 22. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Three different words Peter uses to describe Jesus' miraculous deeds, but they don't mean quite the same thing. You know, the the word miracles in the original Greek text comes from the word dunamis, from which we get our English dynamite. It's a word that conveys power. Jesus' miraculous deeds demonstrated the power of God. For example, he demonstrated his power over nature when he stilled a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. Or when he took five loaves of bread and a couple of fish and he fed 5,000 plus people with it. Power over nature. Jesus demonstrated his power over sickness, over death, when he healed blind Bartimaeus, when he raised his bud, Lazarus, from the dead. 
Jesus demonstrated his power over the supernatural when he cast out demons. He exercised people. On one occasion when he did this, he followed it up telling the astonished crowd, he said, if, if it seems to you like the Spirit of God has shown up, if you're looking at the power of God, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's why you see this power. You know, the king is in your midst. Miracles. Second word that Peter uses to describe Jesus' miraculous deeds, he calls them wonders. See that? You know, wonders is a description of the effect that they had on the people who saw them. Astonishment. They wondered. They said, yeah, I can't believe my eyes. This is incredible. I've never seen anything like this before. The third word that Peter uses to describe them, he, he calls them signs. Why signs? Well, because signs point to something. What do these miraculous deeds point to? Well, they were like giant billboards announcing, this is the omnipotent son of God. This is the all-powerful king. So, Jesus' miraculous deeds qualify him as king. And so does, secondly, so does a victorious death. Keep reading in Peter's sermon. I began in verse 22. Go on to verse 23. Peter says, this man, this Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And yet you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now I say this verse describes Jesus' victorious death, but you may be wondering, how can a death be victorious? I mean, he, he, isn't death something bad? Isn't it a tragic affair, the ultimate defeat? And some of what Peter says in verse 23 about Jesus' death, it certainly makes it sound terrible. He says, you with the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to a cross. See, from a strictly human perspective, Jesus' death was a catastrophe. But please note in verse 23 how a sovereign God can take even the wickedness of people and accomplish his purposes with it. Peter says in the opening line of the verse that Jesus' death happened according to God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge? Yes. God was actually up to something good. Now, this doesn't excuse the wickedness of those who put Jesus to death. It just means that God, a so listen to this, it means that a sovereign God can take even evil and accomplish good with it. Wow. So Jesus' death was not just an accident. God had a deliberate plan. Okay, what was the plan? I'll give it to you in a nutshell. It's going to be a small nutshell because this is really the storyline of the entire Bible. But if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, we read that God's arch enemy, Satan, enticed the original couple, Adam and Eve, to sin. And when they disobeyed God, they were unplugging from the source of life. What happens when you unplug from the source of life? You what? You die. Death is the penalty. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. First you die spiritually, leads to your physical death. If it's not remedied in this life, it becomes eternal death in the world to come. By the way, that's Satan's scheme still today. To entice you to sin so you'll unplug from the giver of life and you'll die. So have you ever sinned? Well, then you've played into Satan's hand. But God's not done with things. In Genesis chapter 3, 
immediately upon Adam and Eve sinning, God puts into motion a rescue plan. And he tells Satan himself what the rescue plan is. Genesis 3, verse 15, he says, Satan, one day this couple is going to produce a descendant, a human being. He's going to arrive on the scene, do battle with you, go toe-to-toe with you, and you will mortally wound him, but he will crush your head. He will utterly defeat you. You say, wow, it sounds like a plot of a superhero movie, right? Yeah. You ever see Thor? <laughs> no? i got a son-in-law who loves superhero movies, so it's kind of boys' night out, right? So Thor, you watch Thor. From the beginning, you know who the good guy is and the bad guy, right? I mean, you see this Thor is this smiling, blonde-haired, muscle-bound, handsome guy. And, and then you see his foster brother, Loki, who's kind of creepy looking, right? He's dark, sinister, always sneering. And, and you know from the get-go that a showdown is going to come. There is going to be a major battle. There's going to be a clash. You say, where are you going with this analogy? Well, you know from the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, that there's going to be a showdown. It's going to be a cosmic battle between good and evil. It's going to be God versus Satan. And i got to tell you, the showdown happened at the cross. And God's son, Jesus Christ, emerged victorious. He won How did he win? By beating Satan to a pulp with a huge hammer? Sorry, Thor fans, but no. Jesus wins by dying. You say, by dying? Yes, Jesus takes the penalty that our sins deserve, which is death. Jesus dies in our place so that Satan's scheme to disconnect us from God, the source of life, to render us dead is foiled for all who put their hope and trust, for all who surrender to Jesus. The writer of the New Testament, book of Hebrews, puts it this way. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Jesus shared in our humanity. He became one of us so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, that's Satan, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus wants to free you from Satan, wants to free you from sin, wants to free you from death. He certainly looks the part of a conquering king. His qualifications for the role include his miraculous deeds and his victorious death. Now, Peter moves from, number one, Jesus' qualifications as king, to number two, Jesus' enthronement as king, Jesus taking the throne. And this is where the Easter part of the story comes in, the resurrection of Jesus. And I'd like to note three things in Peter's sermon that he tells us about Jesus' resurrection, a resurrection that leads to his being exalted to the right hand of God and enthroned as king of all kings. First thing Peter tells us is that the resurrection was prophesied by King David. You say, well, so? Well, if you understand that King David lived over 900 years before Jesus, this would make it a pretty stunning prophecy. So pick it up where we left off, verse 24. As I read this to you, it might sound confusing at first, but hang in there. You're going to get this. Verse 24, Peter says, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. Again, this is a quote 
900 years earlier, a prophecy of King David, David said this, I saw the Lord always before me, and because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Now listen to this. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. End of quote. Peter continues the sermon. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and he was buried in his tomb. It's right here. It's right here to this day. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. Stop there. You following Peter's argument? He says, you know, 900 years ago, King David wrote this song. It's included in our Old Testament book of Psalms. It's Psalm 16, if you want to look at it sometime. And in that psalm, King David celebrates the fact that after he dies, God will not let him stay dead. God will not let his body decompose. Peter says, well, David couldn't have been talking about himself when he wrote this psalm. Why not? Well, because we all know David died, he was buried. We, we know his tomb is right here in Jerusalem. You could see it for, for yourself. His body's been decomposing. By the way, I've seen that tomb in Jerusalem right there. So when, when David's, David's psalm speaks about his body not decaying, it must be a prophecy about somebody else. Peter says, Jesus, is that somebody else? Jesus was raised from the dead. And what's really cool about this, friends, is not only that this means Jesus is the fulfillment of King David's prophecy about his body not decaying, being raised from the dead, but it also means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies that say one day a descendant of David, a king even greater than King David, Israel's most famous king, would reign on his throne forever and ever. I'm getting ahead of the story. Here's the second thing Peter says about Jesus' resurrection. He says the resurrected Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. We left off at verse 31. Pick it up, verse 32. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. I like what one Bible scholar has written about this verse. He says, one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus is that Peter could stand in the city where this event had taken place a little more than a month before and tell these people that Jesus had risen from the dead with not a single person challenging him. They knew that the authorities could not produce the body of Jesus. Stop and think about it, friends. Christianity could have been squashed by its opponents from the get-go. All the authorities had to do was produce the body of Jesus. That would have shut up Jesus' followers pretty quick. How could you say he's risen from the dead? Here's his dead body. But there was no dead body. Because Jesus had been raised from the dead and people had seen him. Peter says, I've seen him. We're witnesses. 20 years later, the Apostle Paul, writing one of the New Testament epistles, a letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, two decades later, he says over 500 people have seen Jesus alive after his death. In fact, many of them are still alive. If you want to check it out, Paul says, ask him, ask him. 
Third thing Peter tells us about Jesus' resurrection in this sermon is that after the resurrection, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God where he now reigns as king over all. Okay, he's exalted. He's king. And Peter is about to quote another one of David's psalms. This time it's Psalm 110. And once again, it initially sounds as if David is speaking about himself. But Peter says, you know, it couldn't be. Couldn't be David talking about himself because what he says is so far beyond his experience, it's got to be a prophecy about somebody to come. Let, let, let me read it for you. Pick it up at verse 33. Peter's sermon. So Jesus exalted to the right hand of God has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David, David did not ascend to heaven, and yet David said, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Who is this person whom David prophesies will be exalted to the right hand of God? Again, Peter says David couldn't be talking about himself. Look at verse 34. He says, the Lord, meaning God the Father, says to my Lord, who is my Lord? Sit at my right hand. Who is David's Lord? Who is superior to King David, Israel's most famous king? He's talking about a king greater than himself? A king who would be resurrected from the dead and enthroned at the right hand of God? Peter says David is talking about Jesus. And so he concludes his sermon in verse 36 by saying, that's why God has made this Jesus Lord and Messiah. And we tend not to get it in the English, but these are exalted titles, friends. Start with Lord. Lord in the original Greek is the word kyrios. Let me tell you what's so significant about kyrios, calling Jesus kyrios. Back in the year 200 B.C., the Old Testament, which had been written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, called the Septuagint. The translators were looking for a word, just the right word to translate the name, the Hebrew name for God into Greek. You know, you know what word they chose? Kyrios. And so hundreds of times you'll read in the Greek Old Testament, God referred to as Kyrios, 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 Kyrios. Peter comes to the end of his sermon about Jesus, and he says, God has made him Kyrios. He's God. This is Jesus, exalted to the Father's right hand, God himself. And not only that, he calls him Lord, Kyrios, and Messiah. This is a Hebrew title. In Greek, the title is Christos, Christ. Messiah Christ, same title, both mean the same thing. They speak of the promised Savior, the one prophesied in the Old Testament who would come as king, as king. Peter concludes his sermon by saying Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God where he is enthroned as king above all kings. We've looked at Jesus' qualifications as king. We've looked at Jesus' enthronement at the Father's right hand as king. And third thing I want to point out from this sermon is Jesus' command. Command as king. Now look at the close of the sermon. Verse 37. Peter has finished speaking. Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Now again, let me remind you what the this is that they had heard. Verse 36 
they had heard that they had crucified the one who is now king of all kings. And they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, meaning people living like 2,000 years later, you and me, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Okay. When the people heard that they had crucified the one who now reigns as king, Acts says they were cut to the heart. You need to understand this expression, cut to the heart, it doesn't mean like, oh, they were sorry or they felt bad. Cut to the heart is a much more serious expression. It communicates a sort of panic strickenness. This is a, oh, crud, we're in big trouble. I mean, we're in really, really big trouble. You know, an analogy might help here. The only one I could think of is kind of trite, so hang with me. But, but imagine if you would, you get a job working for a department store, okay? And your first day on the job, I mean, it is hectic, it's crazy. You come to the end of the day, you're burnt out. You didn't get a coffee break, much less a, a lunch break. Steep learning curve, uh, learning the product and the cash register and all that other stuff. Um, customers who want to argue with you and debate things and they're grumpy. And uh, finally, at the end of the day, the very last customer of the day is actually a polite young man who comes up and asks for the men's department, but you lose it. You go off on him. Okay, you say, you, can't you see I'm busy? Go ask somebody else. And he walks off. Now you close down and afterwards your supervisor comes up to you and, and she says to you, you know, I saw that last altercation with the final customer, heard what you said. And your response is, I'm, I'm sorry. I re, you know, I promise you that will never happen again. And she says to you, well, yeah, it won't happen again. Let me tell you why. Be, because that, that person you just verbally abused, it's the son of the CEO of the department store chain nationwide. Next month, he takes over the job as CEO. See, how do you feel? You're not feeling like, oh, I'm sorry. Now you're feeling like I'm dead, right? I mean, I'm I'm dead. So when people realize that they've participated in putting to death God's son, the king of all kings, which, by the way, just an aside here, is something we've all participated in. You say, I wasn't even there. You know, I didn't hold the spike. I didn't pound it into his feet, into his hands. But if Jesus died for sins to pay the penalty that sinners should pay, if you're a sinner like me, then we put him there. What happens when you come to the realization that you participated in the death of the one who now reigns as king of all kings? What's the only appropriate response? Is it just, sorry, People who get it, people who get it cry out as Peter's first century audience did at the end of his sermon. Look again at the closing line of verse 37. Peter's listeners ask, and there's a note of desperation to their voices, what shall we do? It's like, oh my God, what shall we do? What does Peter tell them to do? Two things in verse 38. By the way, the two things he tells them, these are not suggestions, these are not recommendations, these are not good ideas, they're imperatives in the text, they're commands. 
Verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized. Now, let me explain what's meant by each of these expressions because, listen, friends, these are the only appropriate response to King Jesus. This, This is what King Jesus is commanding us to do. If they've never been your response before today, I would encourage you to engage in these two actions. The first is repent. The original Greek word is a compound word. It means literally to change your mind. You say, change my mind? Change my mind about what? Well, for starters, change your mind about yourself. Are you usually thinking of yourself as a basically good person? The Bible says, Romans 3, verse 23, no, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, a God who knows all has seen every wicked thought, word, deed that's ever come out of your life. For a lifetime, he's seen it all. Change your, repent about yourself, how you see yourself. You think of yourself as basically living the full life? No, according to God's word, the wages of sin is death. Your sins have killed you, spiritually speaking. One day you face God's judgment, eternal death. Change your mind about yourself. You're in deep weeds. You need a Savior. And then more importantly, change your mind about Jesus. See, if you think of Jesus as kind of optional baggage, you could take him, you could leave him. You know, maybe he's an errand boy who you pull out on occasion when you're in trouble and you say, Jesus, get me, me out of this. The Bible says, think again, he is your only hope in life. He's the one who gave his life on the cross so that you could be forgiven. He took the debt you deserve to pay. And he rose from the dead, is exalted to the right hand of God. He's king. Bow your knee to him. Change your mind with regard to how you're looking at Jesus, repent. That's what the word repent means. Change your mind about yourself, about how you look at Jesus. And then the second expression, and be baptized. You know, that's the way that people have publicly stated for the last 2,000 years that they are now making Jesus the Savior and King of their lives. You want to show that? Peter says after you've made that decision to surrender to Christ that, you know, you go under the water, you come back out again, symbolic of the fact that you've identified with the one who was buried and risen again. This is the outward expression of a commitment that you make internally first. Now, we baptize hundreds of people, new Christ followers, every year at Christ Community Church. But we don't have any, any, any water ready to baptize you with today but I can still ask you to make the internal commitment to surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and King. And Peter says in verse 38, if you're willing to do that, God has two incredible gifts in store for you. The first gift, look at verse 38, is forgiveness of your sins, middle of the verse. The sins that separate you from a holy God, the sins that cause you to disconnect from the giver of life, And Jesus can offer you forgiveness, clean slate, if you'll surrender to him as Savior and King. The second gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside you the minute you put your your life in Christ's hands and you surrender to him. And this enables you to live a Christ-honoring life so you're freed not just from sin's penalty but from its power in your daily life to live in a transformed way, in a way that pleases God. Peter says, repent, change your mind about yourself and about Jesus, and be baptized. Make this internal commitment that you're willing to go public with. 
You know, at this point in our service, we, we typically call the close of our services, we call it the invitation. Because I invite you to do what I've just been describing, surrender. If you, if you haven't done this before, to surrender to Jesus as Savior and, and King. But as I thought about Peter's sermon this week, I thought, you know, the word invitation is way too mild. There is not some Girl Scout standing on the doorstep of your life saying, please, please buy my cookies. This is not an invitation. Who's on your doorstep? The King. King Jesus. He's looking you in the eye right now, and he's saying, repent and believe. Change your mind about yourself. Change your mind about me, Jesus says. Surrender. Make me your Savior and King. We want to give you the opportunity to do that right now as we draw things to a close. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head in prayer with me at all four of our campuses. Would you just bow for a moment of prayer? And I want to pray the sort of prayer that people have used for centuries to surrender to Jesus as Savior and King. And if you've not prayed a prayer like this before, I encourage you from your heart, pray this. You know, those, those who pray it become loyal followers. Those who refuse to bend the knee and pray a prayer like this, they're rebels to the king of all kings. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I want to change my mind. I want to repent of how I viewed myself. I think of myself as pretty good. But the truth is, I'm a sinner. Every single day of my life, I've done things to offend you. And my sin disconnects me from you, the giver of life. I believe what your word says, that the wages of sin is death. I don't want death. I understand that your son, Jesus, came to do battle with Satan, to defeat him at the cross, so that he could pay for my sin and offer me life. I want to receive that forgiveness. I want that life that Jesus offers. And I want to change my mind about Jesus. I've been treating him far too cavalierly. I've been giving him minimal amounts of time and energy and attention. But I want him to be on the throne of my life. And so right now I'm going to get off that throne and I'm going to put Jesus there. He's going to be my king. I want to walk in obedience to him. I want to find out in days and weeks to come what that means. Now, as you're bowed before God, if you prayed that prayer, I said a moment ago, you know, it begins with an internal commitment. Repent and be baptized. Be baptized is something externally done, but it begins with an internal commitment. I'm still going to ask you to do something external right now. I'm not going to baptize you. But I'm going to ask, if you prayed that prayer, if you surrendered to Jesus just a moment ago, if you just prayed, I want you to be my Savior and King, you meant it from your heart, I want you to do something external. I want you to stand to your feet for one second and then sit back down. And I believe Jesus is asking you to do this right now. And you know it if he's speaking to your heart. And so let me give you just a moment. If this is you, good. Anyone else? Just take a a stand and then sit back down. Yes, up in the balcony. At a, a, other campuses. Bartlett? Yes, good. Who else? Who else wants to stand and say, I surrender my life? He's going to be my king, my savior and my king. Good. 
Are there campuses, Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb? Good. Anyone else? Again, let me remind you, this isn't an invitation. I'm not begging you to do something that will some way profit me or Christ's community. I'm asking you to obey your king who says, change your mind about yourself and about me. Surrender to me. If you want to do that yet, stand to your feet and then sit back down. Good. All right. Lord God, I want to pray for those who stood. I want to pray for those who in their hearts right now, they're conflicted. They're saying, I would like to stand, but I'm not sure if I'm ready. God, I want to pray in coming days that those who've not stood but felt inclined to do so would be led to that place where they too surrender to Christ. And I want to pray that those who made that decision right now, that they would be sincere. They'd follow through on what it means to be a loyal citizen in the kingdom of King Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.